Something amazing happened to me recently. I became a grandfather for the first time. Maxwell Jude came into this world to the loving care of my oldest daughter, Alexandra, and her husband, Ryan. I couldn't be prouder, I couldn't be happier for Maxwell, as he has two incredible people as parents. But that wasn't the only amazing thing that happened. My outlook changed. I started looking past my lifespan and my daughter's lifespans to Maxwell's. I asked myself, what's life gonna be like for Maxwell as he grows older? Will he live in marvelous times where technology solves many of our society's problems, extends our life and gives us new tools to allow us to think, explore and imagine, to create? Or will Maxwell live in the most challenging of times, brought on by humans' ongoing war with each other and the planet we inhabit? The UN's latest, most in-depth scientific report on climate change warns the dangers are immediate and growing more acute. Greenhouse gas emissions must be cut nearly in half by 2030 to have any chance of limiting global warming. We are on a fast track to climate disaster. My guest today, whom I will soon introduce, said that dinosaurs didn't have a choice, but we do. And that so much of Maxwell's future, our future, rests in our hands, hearts and our minds. Can we become one human race in harmony with each other, living in harmony with other living creatures and treasuring this wonderful planet called Earth? My guest today has devoted her life to studying our oceans. In 1998, Time magazine named her as the first hero of our planet. Asking why we didn't do something on our watch to save sharks and bluefin tuna and squids and coral reefs and the living ocean, while there still was time? Well, now is that time. And she pulls no punches. She describes the seafood industry, for example, as factory ships vacuum up fish and everything else in their path. That's like using a bulldozer to kill songbirds. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Her name is Dr. Sylvie Earle, and since 1998, she's been a National Geographic explorer in residence. She's sometimes called her deepness, or the Sturgeon General. She has set records for deep sea diving for being the first female chief scientist at the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And she cares deeply about my grandson, Maxwell Jude, and you, and all who have the potential to save our planet. And what you will soon learn that her lifetime dedication to oceans and saving our planet began as a three-year-old playing in the water when she got knocked over by a rogue wave. Dr. Sylvie Earle, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you for having me on board. So the poet Odin said, thousands have lived without love, but none without water. We all know that water sustains our life. And I would argue the majority of the people on this planet know that water is essential for our survival. Why don't we act upon it? Why don't we treasure water as a gift? If, you, if I could answer that question, uh, <laughs> I would be a great hero. The trouble is we just take water for granted. It falls out of the sky, right? It's just there in lakes, rivers, and streams, and certainly the ocean, even though you don't drink salt water. That's the source of the fresh water. It goes up into the clouds and falls back on land and sea. 97% of Earth's water is ocean. We're complacent about having water. This is the water planet. And even if you've never seen the ocean, the source of most of Earth's water, the ocean touches you everywhere, everyone. With every drop of water you drink, it 
ultimately cycles as part of the ocean. With every breath you take, where does the oxygen in the air come from? Mostly from the ocean. It's taken a long time for what started out as rocks, then rocks and water, and now a living planet that is habitable for life as we know it. And we just take it for granted, except can't do that anymore. So I understand that this incredible life adventure and journey with the ocean began as a three-year-old like many other three-year-olds, splashing in the water, and you got hit and knocked over by a rogue wave. T take us back to that time, because I, I'm always fascinated by moments in childhood that manifest itself into these lifetime adventures. That wave that kind of sneaked up behind me when I wasn't looking, knocked me over, literally took my breath away. I couldn't breathe. And it was frightening at first, but then when my toes touched the bottom and my head came out of the water, <laughs> I could breathe, I realized well, that was fun. <laughs> that was exhilarating. And my mother who watched this happen could have been the kind of mother who would grab me out of the ocean and never let me go back again because it looked so scary. Fortunately, she saw the big smile on my face and let me go back in, and I've been jumping back in ever since. And I understand it's not just your mother that encouraged it, that your older brother, a little bit of mischief with his friend, borrowed, and I use that term loosely, some diving equipment, and all the three of you went off and decided that you are going to become DC divers with equipment that really didn't belong to you. Take us back to that story. Our next door neighbor was a sponge diver, and the sponge diver's son and my brother conspired to, quotes, borrow the basic equipment, not the big heavy suit or the weights, but the compressor and the copper diving helmet that made it possible to breathe underwater. It was a river, the Wikiwachi River in Florida, where we, we tried to see what it was like. It just seemed so miraculous that we could be able to see the fish. We thought we were there to look at the fish, but actually what was so exciting is the fish came over and started looking at us. That was a breakthrough. Everything I've read about it is you really describe fish as these curious creatures. That you know, It's almost like you have a real personal relationship with them. Where a lot of, again, we take it for granted. We think that's our food source. You treat fish as equal. So when did that begin for you? Consider birds. We used to think of birds simply as, quotes, resources, as products, as something there for us to use and eat. Fortunately, we learned how to cultivate birds. Think of how many birds we do eat. Chicken, turkey, ducks, geese. In the ocean, we casually take old fish that are 20, 30, sometimes 50, or even 100 years old and treat them as if we, the way we treat chicken, eating these big old fish from the sea. Probably not a smart idea because they are the elements that make up the fabric of life that holds the planet steady. We we see it with trees. We're beginning to honor and respect the importance of trees for carbon capture and maintaining the chemistry of the planet. We even see it now with whales that once, not so long ago, were just treated as products. But the International Monetary Fund commissioned a study that put a dollar sign in terms of carbon, in terms of climate, on whales, a trillion dollars for the living whales at any one point in time because of their role in capturing and holding carbon with a direct relationship to climate. Why not get to know these creatures the way we've gotten to know whales as individuals, not just by the ton? The great thing about life on Earth is enormous diversity coupled with how everything connects. 
so that our chemistry, the chemistry of life on the land and life in the sea, it's all connected. This is not just about money. This is not just about food. This is about respect for life. Where did you become such a great storyteller? Because most of the people I talk to that are so consumed by science and exploration and every minute they have on this planet, they're trying to dive deeper and deeper into the things that matter, aren't necessarily great storytellers. I'm not saying they're not, but you, you are a magnificent storyteller. You bring this stuff to life. Where did that come from? Telling it the way it is, sharing experiences that have changed me. And I really want people to go see for themselves. If by telling a story, it will make it possible, make it irresistible for people to want to go see an octopus, not on their plate. Oh, what a concept. It's an awful thought. Once you've seen them underwater and had an experience with them looking at you, communicating the way octopuses can, by changing their color, by changing the shape of their skin. I get goosebumps sometimes. Octopuses take this to a whole new level. We have this habit as humans. We have to take this wild place and, quotes, make it better by developing it, to improve by changing, when actually it's taken millions of years to shape coral reefs, to shape old-growth forests, to shape the deep sea systems that there's really not much we can do to improve on them. We're not making them better. If I can tell a story, how Earth has come to be and how we have been transforming it, thinking we're making it better when actually we're undermining our chances of survival. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My exceptional guest is Dr. Sylvia Earle. She calls her oceans the blue heart of our planet, and to be in the deep sea is to witness the greatest spectacle on Earth. Dr. Earle, you have set many deep sea diving workers, and I know you don't do this for trophies and ribbons. You do it because you want to be down there. You stood in the ocean floor in 1979 in an open ocean dive, untethered, you were on the ocean floor off, off of Hawaii and you set the women's depth record of 381 meters, 1,250 feet. What's it like to stand on the ocean floor knowing that the surface that you need to live <laughs> is that far above you? Well, I did my worrying, my concerns on the surface. I looked out and could see the flash, the sparkle, the glow of bioluminescent creatures it's a characteristic of literally most of life in the deep sea. Below where sunlight shines, it is literally dark day and night all the time. It's where most of life on Earth actually lives. The average depth of the ocean, two and a half miles, more than four kilometers down, about the depth that the Titanic rests on the seafloor. And it's dark, except for the, this bioluminescence that enables creatures to communicate with light. They also communicate with chemistry, with sound. Being in their midst, in this metal diving suit, reach out and touch the corals, kind of coral called bamboo coral that grows like a single spiral. And when I touched it, these rings of blue fire just spiraled through the whole length. I was just entranced. Now, I'm not sure everybody would feel confident trusting technology to take you down that far beneath the ocean surface. Did you ever wonder, were you ever 
concerned or thinking you would run into something that no one ever imagined? Every time I dive, I expect to see things that I've never seen before. And, and it doesn't surprise me that I often see things that no human has ever seen before. It is so easy to do in the ocean. Consider maybe as much as 15% of the ocean has been mapped with the same kind of accuracy that we have for the land or for the moon or Mars or Jupiter. <laughs> and then how many people actually have been underwater with a face mask to be able to see what's there with a gift of time to be able to spend enough time to watch animals interact with them to be and to get a sense of what an ecosystem is like. Scuba is giving us new opportunities. There are actually millions of people who now go into the sea to explore the upper few meters, you know, maybe as much as 50 meters of the ocean. And below that is where most of the action is. The more time we have, Jane Goodall spent 15 years, day and night, getting to know one species, chimpanzees, and changed the way we think about our fellow primates. Living underwater is a step in the right direction. And I've had the pleasure of doing this, well, it's only 10 times when you think there's so much we need to see that the gift of time but being able to saturate, use saturation diving where you allow the gases that you're breathing to saturate your body and so you can stay and decompress all at once at the end of days, weeks. Some people have done it for months, staying underwater, underwater laboratories with a purpose to be able to do what scientists on the land who study wildlife, birds, elephants, pandas, chimpanzees, you name it, to get to know them and see them on their own terms, not in a laboratory, the ocean as the laboratory. We actually see natural behavior, the natural connections that creatures in the sea have. It's really given us new understanding, and we need to do a lot more of this. 21st century human beings are the luckiest who've ever come on the planet, because we have this gift of knowing made possible by technologies that have only happened in recent times to go high in the sky, to see the whole world in a way that you could look at the whole system, how it interacts, the connections, and to go deep in the ocean and to see how life is connected and how we are inextricably connected to all of the rest. When you're married to your husband, Graham Hawks, both of you founded this company called Deep Sea Engineering. In the 70s and 80s, your technology contributed 70% of the manned submersible equipment. That's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but we did have the joy of pioneering some of the small manned submersibles and remotely operated systems. I now, I started a, a company on my own that my daughter and son-in-law now own and operate, building little submersibles and equipment to go into the deep sea. It's, it's a new era. There's a great story I read that as your husband went down, he submerged and hit 1,000 meters. Everybody on the deck applauded. And a reporter was allowed to ask him a question. And he was expecting that sort of Neil Armstrong, this is one small step for man, one giant step for humanity. And instead, your husband quipped, well, my calculations were correct. He said, I got my sums right. I got my sums right. So what was your husband like? And how did you function as a team when you were married? Because both of you, the oceans, the magnetic force that's connecting you, 
And I'm curious about how you made it work. I think it was not so much about us being married. It was about us bringing what each of us could contribute to making something work. But we couldn't do it alone. We had a team of engineers. I don't take personal credit for the success that ultimately came about in terms of developing new kinds of submersibles so simple that even a scientist can drive them (laughs) to make it appealing for others to come on board. Leap forward to 1998 with National Geographic working with equipment, including the deep rover that was designed by Deep Ocean Engineering. We got scientists. We had a teacher. We had the president of National Geographic. We had 50 or so people actually learn how to become pilots of little submarines and to be a voice, each of them with their individual power. The teacher who taught his students how to dive, they could go to 80 feet. He went to 800 feet. Inspire people to want to go and see for themselves and come back and be a voice for the ocean. That's success in my mind. And a New York Times article I read, you talked about when your husband and you realized that you had to make a choice. And you said you opted for career as a scientist more than being a woman, a wife, or a mother. It's just who I am. What advice can you give to people when you pursue passion, when you're curious, when you want to go an inch wide and a mile deep or a mile wide and an inch deep? You have to compromise. Making the choices that matter to you. Children start out naturally curious. They don't know that what they want to do is impossible. And we grown-ups have a habit of telling kids they can't do this rather than, than encouraging them to follow their dreams and make possible what seemed impossible. Society advances by <laughs> overturning old concepts and embracing new ways of thinking. So I had parents. I was really lucky to be given an atmosphere as a kid to be free to explore. I knew they were always there to back me up, and I could never do something I felt couldn't be so wrong that they wouldn't be there for me. But I think that gave me the courage. We we fear change. Somehow, we fear the unknown. But if you have that confidence that somehow, if you want to know, take that leap. Explore. Every child is an explorer. How did you deal and how do you deal with the media that has this gender bias that says, hey, do you wear lipstick down there? And and they, you know, they called you the aqua babe and, uh, you know, all of these sort of terms where you're going, I'm a human being, I'm a pioneer. I mean, some of the headlines after I came back from using the gym suit, brave mom dives to a thousand feet. The kids, I have three three children, now I have four grandsons. They took that center fold out of the... (laughs) Sunday magazine, and they put it on the refrigerator, and they kept calling me brave mom. You have to have a sense of humor. You say the fish don't care, and you turn it into something that people can relate to. We all like to breathe. It's one thing we can agree on. We need a planet that works in our favor. So anything that I can do to get people to come out of their respective shells and say, okay, I don't know about this or that or the other thing, I can't, but I do know that we need to have a place of Earth, a planet that is habitable. I am so excited to realize that I have a little piece of what I can do, but I can't do it alone. Everybody can do something. And together, using our individual superpower, we need people who have a way with music, those who have a way with 
engineering, those who have a way with kids, can sing to take this important time in history when the world is changing in ways that do not favor our future. The natural world is collapsing because of us. We can, armed with knowledge, respect nature, give back. This is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Dr. Sylvie Earle goes deep on what we need to do to stop treating our oceans as a free grocery store and a garbage dump. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Some glorious sunshine for RBC's Tech for Nature. A global $100 million multi-year commitment from the RBC Foundation to support new ideas and technologies to address the most complex environmental challenges. And already, over 100 initiatives are underway. Climate matters to you and to RBC. Our job right now is to look beyond. We have to find the common ground and we have to hurry. Climate scientists say we have about 10 years. Make personal and collective decisions that will take us to a better place. We know what to do. We just have to get out of our old ways of thinking and even our old laws, sometimes that are perverse. And we need to think differently. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest is Dr. Sylvia Earle. In an interview you did, you said scientists have been studying the ocean for 50 years, but most of it is still a mystery. We talked a little bit about that, but you believe that the 21st century, I guess some of those mysteries will be revealed. What do you think we're going to discover in the next 10 years that you uh, certainly want to be around to be part of? Biggest discovery? Huh, the magnitude of our ignorance. That's what we will continue to find as we progress. Every time we discover one thing, ah, there's questions we didn't know we needed to know. But now we're right at that greatest era of exploration and discovery ever. We have to figure out, we have to discover, how can we make peace with the ocean? How can we make peace with nature? What actions in the next 10 years can we take that will serve to reverse the decline, planetary decline that we're now experiencing, largely governed by ocean processes. The ocean governs climate and weather, shapes planetary chemistry and temperature. And it's the living ocean that really is the basis of this. It's not just rocks and water. It's life on Earth that keeps us alive. And most of life on Earth is in the ocean. You describe the deep sea fishing industry as factory ships vacuuming up fish and everything else in their path. Why does that exist? What is wrong with our society that this is happening? Is it because we can't see it? Is it because it's beneath the surface? That's exactly right. You look at the surface of the ocean, it looks the same today as it did probably 10,000 years ago at the surface. And it's easy to ignore what you don't know. But if the deep sea fishing industry is so inefficient, so wasteful, why haven't we collectively come together as a society and said we must stop that and we must stop it now? Do you think the fishing industry wants you to know the real cost of, <laughs> of their prosperity? They are destroying vast areas of the ocean floor with trawling. They're taking indiscriminately with long lines anything that will come to the bait. And that includes birds, includes whales, dolphins, turtles, as well as the targeted species that are not there in just endless 
numbers we have seen through our industrial extraction of ocean wildlife. On my watch, in my lifetime, the decline of many of these big ocean species by 90% or more. Sharks, some oceanic species of sharks that are attracted to long lines, even though in many cases they're not the targeted species, their numbers, the oceanic white tip, their numbers are down, it's thought to be at least 97%. Bluefin tuna, down 97%. Only 3% of the adult population still, we take them and there's sushi and sashimi and these creatures sold at a high end. This is not about food security. It's about luxury dining and about choice. Some people do rely on ocean wildlife truly for sustenance. In some cases, you know, the coastal communities, it's part of their culture. That is not the problem. But armed with today's knowledge, armed with an understanding of what it takes to make a tuna, to make a cod, to make a lobster, to make any of these creatures prosper. We can understand in those areas where it is truly a need, not a choice, by protecting the high seas, the areas beyond coastal waters, beyond national jurisdiction, where this is this should be like the big global bank account, the global commons, the global public trust, area where most of the oxygen is generated, where carbon is captured, where if we keep the high seas intact, where we confine what we take out of the earth to places that we can monitor and see in, on land-based, not the deep sea, that is still relatively intact. Why would we disturb parts of our spacecraft earth that are keeping us alive just because we have short-term expectations about what we can take with a real cost, like trawling for the fish we take from the deep sea has a big cost associated with it in terms of the habitat destruction, carbon capture and sequestration, loss of diversity. It doesn't make sense. We've done a lot of work as a humanity. I'm seeing a real movement to eating more plant-based foods less animal protein. And it seems to be that people are doing it beyond their health, but this is the right thing to do for our planet. Is there a way that we can get the same social conscience? For example, plastics. What I keep trying to understand is just how much plastic truly is in the ocean and how devastating is that for everything you talk about with this, with the ocean being the, the heart of the planet? It goes back to the same basic thing. Once you know, you can care, and then take action. If you don't know, you can't care, and no action happens. We thought, you know, bringing fossil fuels, burning for the source of energy has served us really well in so many ways. It's taken us high in the sky. It's taken us deep in the sea. We, we have a level of prosperity unprecedented, largely because, you know, we've tapped into this fossil one-time extraction of fuels that once they're gone, they're gone. But the gift we have is now we know and we can change. We must change. We must come up with alternatives about how we power civilization. And we know we can. We must find other ways of feeding ourselves. Instead of taking wildlife the way our ancestors did thousands of years ago, we've learned to cultivate in small areas, leaving most of the planet intact. We can generate high quality, delicious food, that doesn't mean squandering the wild animals from the land or squandering the wild animals from the sea for short-term pleasure. We cannot feed 8 billion people with ocean wildlife. We just cannot do it. 
we can quickly exterminate, and we are quickly running out of exterminating ocean wildlife. So it's a, a delusion thinking that we can feed ourselves with wildlife from the sea. It's a luxury even now. For those who really rely on ocean wildlife for their sustenance and for their culture, no culture relies on high seas fishing. They, we, we rely on the high seas for the bigger picture, generating oxygen, capturing carbon, providing healthy populations of tuna and cod and other creatures that come into the coastal areas and perhaps can serve as a small source of sustenance for some of our population. But to feed most of us most of the time, we have to think lower on the food chain, not top carnivores like tuna and swordfish and cod. If we're going to eat animals, what animals do we cultivate? Grazers, very short food chain. Sunlight, plants, cow. Sunlight, plants, pig. Sunlight, plants, chicken. Think about a cod. Sunlight, phytoplankton, zooplankton, little fish, bigger fish, and finally you get up to a cod. They can't eat plankton. They need all these middlemen to do the translation of the sun's energy to make a cod. And we now we know this. We didn't know that. Think about it at least a hundred years ago. And we still have a chance. We don't have to squander the last tuna or swordfish or cod. We can look at them as we look at whales. They're valuable in the ocean food chains. They capture, hold, and sequester carbon, transfer nutrients that power the phytoplankton that captures the sunlight, generates oxygen, and captures carbon dioxide. I mean, imagine trying to explain this to our ancestors 10,000 years ago. <laughs> imagine trying to explain it to the public at large today, why keeping ocean wildlife in the ocean, because it keeps the planetary processes that you rely on to, to breathe. I mean, that's our job. Now we know, we've got the evidence, we can see what we're doing, we know what will work, and we know what is not now working. So your help in, in this conversation, this chatter, to get people to think differently about how they live, the choices they make, what they can do as individuals, and maybe what we can do collectively as communities, as cities, as, as countries. We, we're all in this together because we all like to breathe. We all better listen up. Chatting with Dr. Sylvia Earle, I can't possibly describe all she has done to draw attention to our oceans, but now I want to draw attention to what can be done. Dr. Earle, you're at the recent COP26 conference, you called on world leaders to ban industrial fishing, saying they can't address climate change without taking care of the ocean. We're starting from where we were in the middle of the 20th century, which marked the greatest era of loss in the history of our species. With our technology, we were able to scale up very quickly on the land and the sea. Look at the trajectory of rainforests that have been transformed to ashes, these mega-diverse, important, living, biodiverse systems that hold our lives steady. We've learned more at the same time that we've lost more. So 21st century, here we are. We're the luckiest people ever to exist armed with an emergency situation where we have to put into practice what we know while we continue exploring 
and gathering new insights, but the evidence is very clear. I spent my COVID year, that continues, it's more now, but producing a book for National Geographic, Ocean, a Global Odyssey, by looking at what we know about the ocean, looking at what we know about the diversity of life in the sea, and then looking at what we can individually and collectively do to shift from the this trajectory of decline to recovery, and finally making peace with nature. So just last week, I saw a beginning of a shift. I went to the Galapagos to celebrate, to salute the president of Ecuador, Galapagos is Ecuadorian, President Lasso, for his leadership, a blue leader, committing his country and other blue leaders around the world saying 30% of the ocean by 2030 will be highly or fully protected in collaboration with leaders in three other countries, Colombia, Costa Rica, and Panama, all committing to protecting a swimway in their coastal waters offshore. We have come now to the point where we can see not only how these systems work, but we know what to do to protect them so we're protecting ourselves. You've been doing this a long time. You haven't lost any of your passion. What's next for you? I mean, Mission Blue, what are the other things? You talked about your book with National Geographic. You're, you're obviously with your new technology, but what's next? What's the next 10 years going to be for Dr. Silvero? Onward and downward. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the ocean that we need to really significantly respect in ways we have not known enough why it matters in the past, but now we know. What are we waiting for? I certainly am continuing my lifetime research on who are these creatures who live in the sea. David Attenborough regards himself as a witness, and so do I. Jane Goodall is a witness to this era of greatest understanding coupled with the greatest loss. But it's the greatest opportunity right now to use what we now have and to shift from decline to recovery, to get others to see what we've seen, share in the joy being the most important people who've ever lived on earth, because we have the power of knowing what to do to secure an enduring future by taking care of the natural systems. We think of trees and birds and ocean and water or whatever it is as resources, as commodities. I think we need to shift from saying, this is there for us to use, to sell, to turn into something more, more practical for humans. No, it's respecting the natural systems. You are awesome. I respect you. I need you. I need you because I need to breathe. You've got power. Nobody can do it all. But all of us can do something. Or you can do nothing and be part of the problem. Be the ones who, who turn us in the right direction. As you know, I began my show talking about Maxwell Jude. I became a grandfather a few days ago. And so I'm going to say, here's the three things, Maxwell, I want you to take away from this program. The first thing is that we're listening to someone that understands the power of narrative, that she explored areas of the world that no one has explored. As much as she's consumed by it, she's also equally passionate about sharing. And the fact that you use narratives like hunting for, uh, for songbirds with a bulldozer is powerful narrative. And I want you to know that as you start to bring your passion to life, the more you can wrap it in storytelling, I think the more people can 
get involved. Second thing I learned from talking to Sylvia Earle is the sense of community. She never says I, it's about we, and she says the teacher, the student, everybody has a role in our community to play. And I think that even when you are creating brand new engineering, even when you're standing a thousand feet below on the ocean ground and looking up, you said it was because of a team. And I think that is something that we all need to celebrate. And the most important thing that just roars through this talk is a combination of humanity and the fact that we are so lucky to be part of the 21st century, even though the next 10 years is going to define whether we have the next 10,000, we have the technology and we have the proof to convince that new generation. And I hope, Maxwell, you're leading that as part of it to say we can make these choices and make these changes. So, Sylvia Earle, it has been such an honor talking to you and your quest, and I will do my part to share it to my audience. We can do this. Thank you. Thank you, Tony Chapman. Go for it. If you're a fan of Chatter That Matters, you know that this show isn't about me. It's about ordinary people who do extraordinary things, despite challenging and sometimes what seems like insurmountable circumstances. My intent? Just counter that storm of negativity and feelings of impossibility by sharing stories of positivity and possibility. And as a fan, you know that RBC has been my partner since day one. And I couldn't be prouder of who they are and all they're doing beyond banking. You would have learned about RBC's future launch, a 10-year, $500 million commitment to help youth find and pursue their path in life, or training ground that helps athletes pursue their Olympic dreams. RBCX, which helps artists and musicians and filmmakers perfect their craft and find the audience their talents deserve. And what RBC is doing to make this world more accessible, to embrace diversity, to encourage women-led businesses, to support small business, healthcare, and so much more. And today in the special Earth Day edition, I want to talk to you about RBC Tech for Nature. It was launched in 2019 as a global multi-year commitment to support new ideas, technologies, and partnerships to address their most complex environmental challenges. To date, more than 125 organizations have benefited from over $27 million in community investments. And today, I'm so proud of RBC for announcing the latest roster of RBC Tech for Nature partnerships, which includes over 100 partners from around the world. The three areas that they're focusing on, first is data. How do you transform the collection, accuracy, and availability of environmental data and building tools to democratize information and to help people, communities, and scientists make informed choices? Second is innovation ecosystems. How do you foster this ecosystem of environmental entrepreneurs, ventures and charities that are all developing technology solutions to address environmental challenges? And finally, communities of action. Harness technology to empower individuals to work with their communities to positively change their behavior and in doing so, produce a notable change to our planet. Tech for Nature is a core pillar of the RBC Climate Blueprint to accelerate clean economic growth and a socially inclusive transition to net zero. If you want to learn more about all the activity taking place around the world, visit rbc.com slash techfornature. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. Happy Earth Day, everyone. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.